And welcome to the May edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave, and coming up on this program... I'm Kate Fulton, and I'm going to be speaking to Alexander Bermange about his play, which is adapted for the COVID era, and is called I Wish My Life Were Like a Musical. I'm Tony Honigberg, and I'll be talking to Michelle Lee, mother of Ollie Lee, who took his own life in 2018, aged just 16. To mark the anniversary... The Ollie Lee Trust Charity, which was set up in Ollie's memory by Michelle, is launching Hashtag Orange for Ollie, a social media campaign. I'm Clive Brosnan, and I'll be speaking to author Beverly Lester about her novel We Were the Newmans, which is set in the 1970s against a fascinating backdrop of apartheid South Africa. And as if all of that isn't enough, we'll hear a rather delicious-sounding recipe, or two, or three, perhaps, from Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips, just in time for Shavuot. And our rabbinic thought for the month comes from Rabbi Charlie Beginsky, chief executive of Liberal Judaism. But before all that, I'm Vivian Krieger with a roundup of the month's Jewish news. Israel held a national day of mourning after the disaster at the all-night Lag Bomer festival, which left 45 people dead and some 150 more injured. About 100,000 mainly ultra-Orthodox Jews attended the festival at Mount Meron in Upper Galilee, which had been cancelled last year due to the coronavirus pandemic. A crush apparently began when some people leaving the event slipped in an overcrowded passageway. At least 10 children and teenagers, including two sets of brothers, were among the dead, with four Americans, a Canadian and a man from Argentina also killed. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said it was one of the worst disasters Israel had known in peacetime and promised an investigation. However, Mr Netanyahu had apparently assured ultra-Orthodox leaders that the festival would go ahead this year, despite objections from public health officers. British Jews held a demonstration outside the French Embassy in London following a decision by France's highest court to spare an anti-Semitic murderer from trial because he was high on drugs at the time of the offence. Kabili Traore killed 65-year-old Sarah Halimi, a retired doctor and schoolteacher, after beating her and then hurling her from a window, shouting, I killed the demon. Previously, she'd been subjected to years of anti-Semitic abuse by Traore, who was her neighbour. The French authorities refused to acknowledge the anti-Semitic nature of his crime. Apart from the British protests, there were also events across France, Israel and the United States condemning the French judiciary. Protesters at an anti-lockdown demonstration wore yellow stars and carried vaccine holocaust banners. Images of the event, which were shared on social media, caused outrage. The chief executive of the Holocaust Educational Trust called for an end to the use and abuse of Holocaust language and imagery and added that the protesters showed an ignorance of history which was deeply painful, crass and insulting to Holocaust survivors and their families. The neo-Nazi Cambridge graduate who's been found guilty of a terror charge came over as a charming young man according to some of his university contemporaries Oliver Bell, who's 24, has been remanded in custody after his conviction and is awaiting sentencing. Bell stood trial at Manchester Crown Court, accused of possessing a bomb-making manual. 
comments made by Bell online about exterminating Jews were reported to the police by his tutor. When his home was raided, books about Hitler were found, together with an image of a swastika on his phone. A charity founded in memory of 16-year-old Ollie Lee, who took his own life three years ago, is running a social media event to fund prevention of suicide and self-harm amongst teenagers through training, education and support. To mark the anniversary of his death, the Ollie Lee Trust, which was set up by his mother, Michelle, is launching a campaign, hashtag Orange for Ollie. Orange was Ollie's favourite colour. The Jewish community is being asked to take a picture of themselves with something orange, tag three friends to do the same, and donate via justgiving.com. And we'll be speaking to Michelle later in the show. And lastly, Harry Morgan. The St Johnswood Eatery, which has served Jewish deli-style food to locals, tourists and celebrities for more than 70 years, has sadly closed its doors for good. The manager, Antonio Franco, said the virus had caused a dramatic drop in revenue and that an attempt to negotiate a rent reduction with the landlord had been unsuccessful. Viv, thank you very much indeed. Well, let us start off the May edition of The Jewish Views in traditional fashion now by speaking to Rachel Grunwald, who is Director of Programming at JW3, to find out what we can expect from the coming month. Rachel, welcome to The Jewish Views again. It's lovely to have you back. And let's dive straight into it, because I know, rather excitingly, we've got rather a lot to talk about this month. I think the first thing we have to establish is... What's come back to JW3? What things can we actually do in person? I've come back to JW3. I'm speaking to you from the beautiful resource room overlooking the piazza in the Finchley Row, bathed in glorious sunshine. But if you don't want to come back to JW3 to see me, which I understand, then you would definitely want to come back for our children's and family activities. On Sundays, we've got that family favourite, Ilana Banana, back with a safely socially distanced Family Disco, Jump, Jive and Jiggle. We've got family music time with kangaroo kids as well. We've got Wildwood storytelling and pods of fun, all sorts of activities for you to do with your little ones, all safely socially distanced. And that's just the Sundays. How does that work in terms of social distancing? Because obviously many events are taking place that are allowed in an outdoor environment. Does that mean that these have to take place outdoors or is it that there is enough distance between people that they can safely take place indoors? How is it all working on that front? A really good question. These take place indoors, but if I take the disco, for example, you would walk into the hall, and I know this because I've done it, you walk into the hall and we've got a, a mat for each family with clean disco hats and disco shakers and all sorts of toys. And then there's several feet between each mat and the next mat. And the capacity in the hall is vastly reduced. We can only get a certain number of families in. And in fact, the government guidelines allow only 15 adults or children over five in a room together. So our booking system doesn't allow the capacity to go above that. And then when you go in, all the family mats are distanced. And all of the activities that I was just speaking about that adults would undertake together with children, playgroups or or such like, they're all built up on those principles. And you've mentioned stuff there that is taking place on a Sunday, but I assume there's got to be some stuff that's creeping back to the weekdays as well. Ah, well, thank you very much for asking. Yes, indeed, we are open Monday to Thursday and we have a whole host of things. Things like 
Amazing Tots, a playgroup for children with developmental delays, which we're so delighted to have back because we know that those children and their families especially are really in need of that stimulation outside the house. We have street dance classes with Spencer Stage School. We have French classes with Club Petit Pierrot. We have our very own lovely Chloe, our family's programmer, doing sensory stretch and grow classes for very little ones on Tuesday morning and a playgroup on a Thursday. And we've got Sophie Kef with the Israeli Scouts. That's just a few of the things that we have back. And each week, actually, partner organisations are starting new classes with us. So you have to keep checking back to our website for what is actually on every day. And we will absolutely come back to the website in just a moment because obviously it's important for people to have those details so they can check wherever they want to go to whatever they want to go to. But there are some things that do have to remain online just for the moment, just as we start to creep back to some sense of normality. So tell us a little bit about some of the stuff that we can find online. In particular, I know there's some adult education events. Yes, exactly. All our adult education remains online for the moment. And you can listen to, or I say listen to, but of course it's interactive. You can be on Zoom with all our favourite teachers, Aviva Deutsch talking about modern Jewish literature, William Tyler, who we heard from on this podcast last month, talking about, well, William could talk about pretty much anything. He is the definition of a polymath. And in addition to all of those favourites, in May we have a new course in partnership with YIVO, and that's the YIVO Institute for Jewish Research, which is dedicated to the preservation and study of the history and culture of East European Jewry worldwide. And we have sessions on kosher foxtrot, Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking, Britain's Jews in the First World War and revenge tragedy, because the diversity of our programme reflects the diversity of our community. One special thing happening in May is we have David Aronovich doing an event with us to launch a new anthology of essays called Looking for an Enemy, which is looking at the global resurgence of anti-Semitism across Europe and in the US. Well, I look forward to hearing what David Aronovich has to say. It's a very sad subject, I'm sure, but at least it's going to be by an interesting lecturer, I have no doubt. Now, JW3 wouldn't be JW3 without a little bit of arts and culture. So what can we expect on that front? A little bit of arts and culture, Phil, doesn't do us justice. This month, we are stuffed with arts and culture. The first thing that we have coming up is Revelation, which is an online late night into the night celebration of the festival of Shavuot. It's a very JW3-ish twist on the tradition of a tikkun leo, where you stay up and, and study in preparation for marking the giving of the Torah. But it, it won't just be studying. It'll be work from new artists. It'll be new twists on old stories and on rituals. Really, really recommend it. And a real treat coming up. We have a celebration of the 50th anniversary of the late, great Michael Friedland's defining BBC radio show, You Don't Have to Be Jewish. And that will be with his son, Jonathan Friedland. And that's not all. We have a birthday celebration for Bob Dylan. Happy birthday, Bob. That's on the 24th of May. And we are celebrating his birthday with an online concert taking a deep dive into his music to reveal its Jewish roots and mystical branches. And as if all that wasn't enough. That's all online. We have one isolated event in the building. And I say one isolated event because apart from children and families activities, we're not yet open for cultural gigs, for performances and for cinema, except for this. On the 27th of May, we have commissioned a brand new show from young Jewish artists, immersive. That means all over our building in spaces that you wouldn't normally think of as performance spaces. It's called Isolated. It's going to be ideally suited to young people in their 20s and 30s. And it's these brilliant young artists 
taking their inspiration from Jewish texts and traditions around the theme of emerging from isolation. So small groups of audience members, only about 15, will come in one at a time and work their way around the building to see performances in different media from different artists. It's a really unique experience and something that JW3 is really proud of, actually working with freelance artists and being really creative with how we use our space and how we relate to each other as we as a society think, what does it mean to emerge from isolation? So I think you'll agree, Phil, that we are indeed stuffed with arts and culture in May. Absolutely. Um, One place you can go for all the arts and culture and all of the events that Rachel has been speaking about, you can always go to the JW3 website, which of course is jw3.org.uk. Director of Programming, Rachel Grimwald, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Phil. You're listening to The Jewish Views, an association with JW3. Now, we're all missing going to the theatre, but luckily there are those like our next guest who are coming up with creative ways to help fill the void created by this pandemic. Composer and lyricist Alexander Bermange has adapted his play, I Wish My Life Was Like a Musical, to be streamed via the King's Head Theatre's website, and it's available now. Alexander joins me to talk us through how it works. Alexander, tell us a bit about the play itself. Well, basically, I Wish My Life Was Like a Musical is a comedic musical review that really reveals everything you could want to know about being a musical theatre performer, if only there were any who would admit it. So it's really a behind-the-scenes look at auditioning, at exhausting dance routines, at understudying, at onstage kissing, at divas, at pre-performance rituals. It's all the things that really go on backstage or sometimes on stage that an audience is not aware of when they go and see a musical, but which might be illuminating for them and also hopefully funny. It does sound, actually, as you're describing it, I can feel myself smiling. It is actually quite a funny concept. What made you, what was your, what sort of made you come up with the idea? How did you get writing it? There are a few things, really. Part was that my background is partly in writing funny songs for BBC Radio 4 and the BBC World Service, and partly in writing musicals and songs and music for the stage. And I'd long wanted to try and fuse those two by creating a show that was an out-and-out comedy while still incorporating as much music and as many songs as possible. The other thing that really inspired it was that a show of mine was done on a cruise several years ago. And something that I noticed in the evening when I was on board the ship with the cast members and we were having our dinner was that a lot of the passengers would gravitate to our table and ply the performers with all kinds of questions about their day-to-day lives. And it occurred to me that there were a lot of preconceptions about what their lives were like. A lot of people quite well-meaningly seem to think that they were ferried from stage door to their front door in a chauffeur-driven limousine and they they lived a luxury. Sadly not. Um, both the ordinary lives and the, you know, the on-stage lives. I mean, we see their happy, smiling faces, but you know, the, the minute the curtain falls, having you know, they've done this this magnificent looking uh, song and dance number, but you know, they might go back to their dressing room rowing with the person next to them in complete and utter agony, knowing that because they've been an understudy, that's the one and only chance they'll get to do it this year because they're understudying a celebrity who's never off but 
can't really deliver the goods. And something which occurred to me was that I thought if I created something which was truthful yet comedic, people who are interested in musical theatre anyway might find it quite engaging. But people who weren't really interested in musical theatre might actually find it quite illuminating because it's simultaneously a love letter to musicals and deeply critical of musicals, if that makes sense. And how do you stand? Do you enjoy musicals? I mean, people do seem to be quite, they love them or they hate them as far as musicals are concerned. Yes, I mean, I think I enjoy some musicals. I mean, something when I was younger, I would, you know, I would say that I was obsessed with musicals. And I think gradually, as I as I've matured and I've, you know, my critical faculties have become a bit more uh, acute. I've learned to realise that I like some more than others. But at their best, they can be absolutely awe-inspiring and life-affirmative. At their worst, they kind of can be a fate worse than death. So it's really both of those things that I, that I wanted to uh, to, to tap into. You've not into enough school productions if, you, if you're actually still writing them then. <gasps> this is going on at the King's Head Theatre, which is in Islington. It's actually one of my favourites. I love it there. It's really good fun. But obviously what everybody That's wants right. to know is practically, how have you been rehearsing? How are you putting this on? And how will it work to uh, to keep everybody safe? Right. Well, this production is entirely streamed. So in the past, this is a show which has been in front of a live audience, most notably at the uh, most recent Edinburgh Fringe, where I was delighted at, at how, it, how it went down. But on this occasion, we are doing it virtually. So it was entirely filmed at the King's Head Theatre in London, but it's going to be able to be watchable from all over the world. Obviously, rehearsing it and filming it was done under the, the tightest possible safety in terms of getting tested or being in a bubble or really having to follow the rules very, very strictly, as is right and proper. But in, in terms of the actual performance, you know, people will be watching it in their in their living rooms and so they won't have to uh, venture into London and, and risk uh, sitting next to coughing, wheezing, spluttering uh, theatre goers sitting next to them. <laughs> sounds, sounds brilliant. So actually you watch on the screen and you're comfortable, that you're happy that comes across well on the, on the screen because normally theatre and film don't normally mix in that close way. Correct. The thing about I Wish My Life Were Like a Musical is it was conceived as quite an intimate theatrical experience. So it features a cast of four, and we're blessed to have a fantastic four, and a pianist. So it's not as though, you know, you've got acres of stage space with dozens of dancers and you don't know where to look first and the camera never knows quite where to focus. The thing about doing something intimate that's meant to be up close is that my experience is that it, it's much closer to recapturing the theatrical experience than, say, something that you're trying to film where, you know, there are all kind of possible things that you could be focusing on at once. And I think also in this era when, you know, it's currently not possible for people to go into most theatres, apart from shortly you know, the biggest possible theatres because they are the ones that can afford to only be half full. 
this is the only way to experience it. But I'm actually very pleased with with how it's turned out because I think it's the kind of the kind of show that really lends itself to such an experience. And the nice thing about the way it's being uh, made available by the King's Head is it's available on demand. And I think from our experience from repeat audience uh, audiences in Edinburgh, people who came multiple times, is that people did seem to get a little bit more out of it each time they came to see it. You know, yeah. did did see it virtually and wanted to see it again, then uh, you can you can Excellent. do so. No, so how do cost. so listen it sounds fabulous. Listeners who'd like oh. to come and see it, how do they do that? Well, they can go to kingsheadtheatre.com. The show is I Wish My Life Were Like a Musical. And for the Twitterati amongst your listeners, we're also on Twitter at Like A Musical. The play is called I Wish My Life Were Like a Musical and is available for streaming now via the King's Head Theatre's website. Alexander Belange, thank you for speaking to us on The Jewish Views. Thank you very much indeed. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. My guest today is Michelle Lee. Michelle is the mother of Ollie Lee, who in 2018, aged just 16, took his own life. And to mark the anniversary, the Ollie Lee Trust charity, which was set up by Michelle in Ollie's memory, is launching Hashtag Orange for Ollie, a social media campaign. Before we talk about the charity and the campaign, Michelle, thank you very much for coming on to the programme, firstly. But please tell us about Ollie and what he was like. Oh, Ollie was just my sunshine. He was just the most beautiful boy inside and out. He was clever. He was popular. He was charitable. He was good and honest. He was kind. He was a gentleman. He was full of fun. And, you know, just like most 16-year-olds, he was completely, you know, a little bit crazy and did things that you do at 16. But he was just a really good boy and he was friends to everybody. Everybody would call Ollie their best friend because he just took time out for everyone. It didn't matter who you were. He just was there for them. Looking back retrospectively, and hopefully to help other parents and friends, did you notice any change in Ollie's behaviour? You might not have noticed it at the time, but just looking back now, do you think you noticed any change in his behaviour? Well, I knew Ollie, as I used to call it, was he was a little bit... He was upset over quite a few things. And I used to say, oh, he's troubled. You know, he's having a bit of a troubled day. But yes, I, I was on top of everything as far as him in that way. And I did send him to a counsellor. But Ollie was so clever. He was such a clever kid. He used to tell the counsellor what he wanted to hear, not really what Ollie should be telling them. He was very guarded and very close towards himself. And he hit his feelings and insecurities. It's just a shame because he was always there for everyone else, but he couldn't obviously find someone there for him. And I never thought he was at risk of suicide. It's one of those questions that will torment me forever until one day I'm with him again. What would you tell other parents if they were in that situation? I would say phone the Ollie Foundation and speak to Debbie Roberts because she is incredible. It's one of the charities we support. They are a charity that offers help to children who are having troubles, having suicidal thoughts. I just think that don't give up on your kids. Don't think, you know, just because they're having a bad day, it will, you know, tomorrow be a better day. You've just got to always be on top of your children. And I really was, and I know it's happened to me, but I still was always on top of what was going on. I mean, I now call it track and trace, but I've always had my children on 
the phone to know exactly where they are, where they've gone. Not because I was trying to keep tabs on them, just because I just wanted to make sure they reached their destination safely. And I just think it's a really good thing to have because this day and age, we just don't know what our children do when they are not with us. We can only control what they're doing when they are with us. We can't control when they're not with us. I understand that Ollie offered help to anyone if they needed it. He was good in that way. And he fundraised for things like Jewish care and helped other organisations. Can you tell us more about that side of him? Do you know what? All he had to do was get a phone call and he'll say, Mum, I'm not going to referee this weekend. I'm going off to help Jewish care because they need me for a fundraiser. I mean, he did so much work for them that they even planted trees in his name in Israel. And I'm very proud of that. And I can't wait for Israel to be opened again so I can go back and actually go to where they've been planted and to visit the orchard that he's in. You know, he was very charitable. He would give up time for Camp Simha every Christmas at Yavna College. He would sweep people's drives if it was snowing. He would take their rubbish out. He would carry bags of shopping. You never had to say to him, Ollie, or can you go and help someone? He'd just be, Mum, I'm just going there. In fact, he used to drive me mad. He used to say to me, Mum, have you phoned them up and said thank you? I'm like, Ollie, it's fine. I've said thank you. He was very mindful of other people, and I'm really proud of him Mm. for being that person. In one interview that I read, you said that you thought he did all this to hide the other side of his mind or his mental ability. Yes, I think he had an outside face and an inside face. And I think most children do, most people do. But totally as a 16-year-old, he just, I think the way that he could get over his insecurities was by helping other people and being there for everyone else. And when he came home, he was just a little boy who used to, go upstairs to his bedroom and still suck his thumb and find his teddy bears and still find them, I felt, you know, find them in bed with him. Yet he'll say to me, well, actually, no, mum, I don't need these anymore. <laughs> you know, or when he came home from Israel tour with school, I had them in the car waiting for him. And I knew the second he'd see them, he would quickly grab them, have a quick smell because he was still a little boy. I mean, 16 is such a little boy's age. Oh. They're not men. They're not, they're are babies they? babies still. No. They've done absolutely nothing with their world yet to make them feel that they are older than they really are. They're still children, and this world has made them grow up quicker, unfortunately. Boys, I think, uh, put on bravado and don't like to own up to any issues or problems that they might have because they don't want to be seen to be weak. I think that's probably where this comes from. It is. It's a society thing. I mean, it's always been like the man goes out and hunts and the woman stays at home. But life isn't like that anymore. You know, we're all equal. And sometimes women women do the job that men don't do the job anymore. And I just think that boys and girls are equal and they have to be treated equally. And they have to understand that their feelings are just as equal as girls. And a boy can cry. Unfortunately, society doesn't see that 100%. But hopefully going forward, maybe society will recognise that more and more. I think it will do. I think the world is changing their opinions to lots of things. It's just unfortunate that it takes events like suicide in young children and mental health and even stars on the television, which sometimes can glamify the whole thing as well. You know, it's not in a glamorous world taking your life. It really isn't. It's completely final. It's finished. It's the end. And the people that you leave behind, they can't put themselves back together ever again. It's impossible but you learn how to be the new you. You learn how to 
had to carry on. You cope rather than, well, you can't forget, obviously, but you co- just cope with yeah. your life and carry on with your life because you've got other commitments. Yes. I mean, I have an, another son. You know, my boys are 13 months apart. Every keep asking me for a photo of Ollie, but I can only find a photo of Ollie and Scott because they were never apart. And it's, it's a bit odd trying to pop Scott out of the picture because that's how my, my photos are. They're always the boys together. And Scott and Ollie were best friends, and it's very hard. And you want to protect your other children as well. You mentioned your other son, Scott. You bring me on to another question. How did Scott take it? I think maybe he followed me. I mean, I'm completely not a stiff upper lip girl and can carry on at all. But because of the volume of people, of love and support that we had, and I don't think anyone's ever seen that before when someone passes away, I just had to be in control because my house was full of people for about six weeks, literally every single day. And it was just so, it was lovely. Don't get me wrong. It was really lovely, but you had to, I, I, I couldn't feel that I could stop for a moment actually and think about the reality. You know, Scott, the Scotch, he was incredible. He was studying for his A levels. He's actually at the university. At now at the moment in Leeds studying medicine which was his dream when he was a little boy and that became my new priority that the only thing I was going to focus on was getting him through his A-levels getting him into university and letting him be able to live his dream and that's my only priority in life really I mean apart from the charity which is my passion to make sure that the Ollie Trust is, is a legacy to my Ollie my only what really drives me is that my son Scott lives his dream and that I'm there to support him the whole way. Tell me about the Ollie Lee Trust. What are the aims of the Ollie Lee Trust? We aim to raise money to grant to smaller charities who work with the prevention of suicide and self-harm amongst teenagers. We're a tiny charity. We've only been going since 2019. We launched February 2020 and then obviously everything went into lockdown. So we haven't really had an opportunity to get our feet into the market and really push our campaigns. I've got an amazing group of dedicated volunteers who have helped me raise thousands of pounds to date. And we've made several grants to smaller charities that actually do the delivering of the training, the education and the support programs to give young people the tools that they need when they're struggling. There's iHearts we're supporting this year and there is the Ollie Foundation as well at the moment. They've got two amazing campaigns out that they put in grants for and we thought fantastic, you're exactly what we, our ethos is all about and we're going to gift you that money this year. And they have to report back to us how the money's being spent, how the project's going, the results of the project, etc. It's all monitored and controlled and we just want to be there to support people who are having suicidal thoughts or thoughts that they just don't know if they are suicidal or where their thoughts are going. We just need charities like ours to be there to offer this support because when I was looking for Ollie for somewhere for him, there wasn't anywhere. I couldn't find one charity at all to help him. There was a retreat in Scotland, but What's the point in sending him all the way to Scotland for three weeks and then coming back to London to his friends who he's going to be in the same situation with, with the same peer group? So it's all well. You need to be educating children in schools. Mm. You need to give them the tools for when they're older 
We really do believe that the last few years of primary school, we should be educating to learn how to deal with issues that have come upon them and their thoughts, their feelings, every situation that comes in front of them. And it's not in place at the moment. So this is what we are aiming to do with the Health of I Heart. And hopefully one day, maybe the Oli Lee Trust, once we've got enough funding behind us, we can actually set up the Oli Lee Trust training manual and programme in schools to help teachers run to deal with their whatever situations coming up in school. We want to work with their pastors and their mental health well-being teachers directly. That's our dream. I mean, it's a funny dream to have, obviously, because it's come out of my son committing suicide. But out of something so tragic, I'm going to keep Ollie alive by doing this and keeping his name out there. And help others in the process. Absolutely, which is all what my Ollie was about. Both my boys were all about giving up their time for other people because there's always someone out there who's needing just a moment of your time. And it's only a moment and everyone can give a moment. Yeah. Tell me about this social media campaign, hashtag orange for Ollie. What's the aim of this and what do you want people to do? Well, it starts off really small. It starts off me thinking, what can I do for people to remember Ollie on the third year of his death? And I just literally started off organically and I thought, you know what, let's everyone just hashtag and wear orange on this particular day. And then a campaign manager just was like, no. Leave it to me, I will get this going for you. So basically, we decided to set this campaign up on Instagram and it's called hashtag orange for Ollie. Orange was Ollie's favourite colour. And we're asking everybody to wear something orange, drink something orange, eat something orange, dance around an orange cone in the streets, do anything with the colour orange, post it onto social media, onto our Instagram page. And basically, we want to stop the stigma behind suicide we want to stop the the stigma that is there with suicide and in a fun way you know we want to remember ollie but the same way we want to raise money for our charity where we're asking people to tag three friends and donate a pound to our just giving page orange for ollie all 100 percent proceeds will be going into the charity which will go directly to helping fund suicide prevention and awareness through our training and patient support initiatives. We just wanted people to have something fun because suicide and death are two horrible words that go together. And if we can make people remember a really good boy, a beautiful boy, and do something fun and make people laugh and smile about, you know, with their postings and raise awareness at the same time. That's that's our aim for the campaign this year. So to donate, they can go to justgiving.com stroke fundraising orange for Ollie. That's Let's the address I've got orange here. For Ollie. Okay, we'll put that on yes. our website as well. And finally, Thank you. what, if any, advice can you give to other parents and friends? Never, ever ever stop telling your children you love them my children never went to bed without knowing that I love them ever ever whatever happens the minute after you say goodbye and you put them to bed at least you know your last words were I love you I message myself and Scott every single night I love you in Leeds he doesn't have to respond doesn't need to respond but he just knows when he goes to sleep at night that I love him yes and that doesn't matter what your children do good or bad it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, they're your babies yeah. and you, you will support them, whatever they do. I agree wholeheartedly with your your sentiments there. Michelle, that has been very interesting, very emotive. And thank you very much for coming on to the programme today. 
and we'll put the fundraising details on our website as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much to everyone. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. South Africa of the 1970s was very different to the country we know today. Apartheid was rife and tensions between those of white heritage and those of black heritage was palpable. Our next guest has chosen that world as the backdrop for her novel, We Were the Newmans. Beverly Lester joins me now to tell us more about it. Well, without giving too much away, can you give us the basic premise of your novel? Where did the idea come from and why apartheid South Africa as the backdrop? We Were the Newmans is looking at the possibilities of forgiveness rather than the possibility. It's, it's complex and it's complicated. And the story is told about the possibilities of recovery, the possibilities of reconciliation. It's told partly as a thriller. It's told partly as a love story. It's a building's romance, a coming of age. So there's, there's quite a lot of things that are going on. My, my day job is as a therapist. A large part of the experience of being a therapist, sitting with a client, is thinking about what was and will never be again, what is not possible and can never happen. So we're in the realm of loss. And from out of that background, I hear many, many stories from people about forgiveness. Is it possible to forgive? Can I ever forgive? Will they ever forgive me? It's very complicated. It's part of, of the experience of being a human being. So that was sort of buzzing around for me for quite a long time, painful stories and, and what it means to not forgive, to not move on, and the very bitter price that we pay for that. But I also had an experience which really shook me to the core, which was I, I had gone, it was in the early 1990s, to see a documentary which was held at the Tricycle Theatre, the cinema there. And it was a documentary about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. And it showed, I think it was six stories in each. I I might be wrong, but that's how I remember it. Three of the conversations between perpetrators and victims. And you saw Bishop Desmond Tutu and you saw a whole panel of people. And it was a mix of black and white perpetrators and victims. And they were talking to each other because that's what the experience was. The, the victims would read a victim statement and the perpetrators were there to say, this is what I did. And the end result was that they'd be granted amnesty, which means they weren't going to be followed through the criminal courts and uh, because it was understood as a political crime. And when the lights came up, I, I mean, I remember I was absolutely overwhelmed. I was sobbing and I was with someone who was South African and she was sobbing and the whole audience was sobbing, not just tears, but sobbing. You could hear people crying. And I came home to my British husband and my British children and I was, I was quite distraught. And he sort of said to me, well, you know, this has nothing to do with you. This is long ago and far away. What, what, you know, 
And I just, I felt absolutely overwhelmed by guilt and by shame for being a South African, having grown up during those years, having gone to what I now understand was called and understandably so an apartheid school as part of the apartheid system. It was really unbearable. And, and so that was there. And I think that something felt quite incomplete for me because I left South Africa December 1985. And a lot happened in the sort of the years after that. And I, I wasn't part of it. So it was all there buzzing around the forgiveness, what you do with it. You know, other parts of my work as a therapist, I've, I've worked quite a lot with second generation Holocaust survivors. I've worked with Holocaust survivors. It's, it's in the material. The main character in your book is Jewish. How present is Judaism throughout the story? And particularly because one of the leading people against apartheid was a man called Ronald Siegel, who married my cousin here in England. And he escaped from South Africa to get to England. Now, um, Judaism played a, a strong part, did they? Well, to my mind, this book, although it is, has, uh, you know, it's a sort of universal ideas, actually the main theme is, is, of course, a core Jewish value because that's what Yom Kippur is about. You know, it's about forgiveness and reconciliation and you know, forgiveness between us and God and forgiveness between us and each other and perhaps forgiveness between us and ourselves. So to me, it, it is a core Jewish value on so many levels. And, and that's, that, I would say, is the most Jewish aspect of the book. There are other aspects which are, you know, you read about in the beginning, which is culturally and in a familial sense, you know, as Jewish as chicken soup and literally chicken soup. Political resistance, you know, the, the Jews who, the, the, there was a Jewish opposition to apartheid, as, you, as you've said. Not all and not the majority, but certainly there was you know, some really heartfelt coming from core Jewish values. Yeah, now that's um, an important part, but it, it's interesting that there are tensions throughout the world now between those of white and black heritage respectively, what lessons do you think we can learn from that era in South Africa? Well, you know, it takes us to man's inhumanity to man. I mean, there's, there's, there's every learning from that, isn't there, in terms of, of the cruelties of apartheid. Horrific, absolutely horrific. And in terms of post-apartheid, I would, I would say that it, it is about what is possible. What is possible? Reconciliation is possible. Discovering our humanity. If anyone wants any more information or to obtain a copy of the book, where do they go? It's on Amazon in Kindle and also in paperback. Right. Well, thank you very, very much indeed. The book is called We Were the New Ones, and we've been hearing about it from the author Beverly Lester. Beverly, thank you so much for speaking to us on this edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you very much for having me. It was lovely to talk with you. It was a pleasure. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Well, can you believe Shavuot is nearly upon us once more? So there's only one person we need to hear from at this time, our Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips, with some culinary ideas for the festival. Denise, what have you got for us this time? 
This year, Shavuot commences Sunday night, 16th of May, and some people refer to it as the Cheesecake Festival. In this broadcast, I want to explore other options which you might like to enjoy this year for a change. In other words, enjoying this yontov without cheesecake, but still dairy. Milky ingredients come in all types and forms. Cream, cheese in particular, cream cheese, with all the different fat contents and flavours, yoghurt, butter, milk, chocolate, white chocolate, and you can now see, I think, there is definitely a white theme. White signifies cleanliness, softness, spirituality, beginnings, purity and light. The idea of using white reflects the symbolism of dairy connected to the festival. The word for milk in Hebrew is halav, which has a gematria of 40 corresponding to the number of days Moses spent up Mount Sinai. Others look to the mountain itself, which was termed in Psalms as Mount Gavanim, meaning peaks, which is similar to the word Gavina, meaning cheese. Symbolising modesty, dairy was also seen as appropriate for the occasion of receiving the Torah, which should always be approached with humility. Others say that Shavuot occurs during the fertile spring period when an animal's mother produces lots of fresh milk. Whatever the reason, dairy foods are often consumed on Shavuos. I have a favourite Lachshan pudding recipe filled with cream cheese, sour cream, soaked raisins in brandy and blueberries. The recipe uses thick Lachshan noodles and is flavoured with cinnamon. The noodles go crispy on the top and the filling has a delicious creamy texture. You can find this on my website. Cheese blintzers, kreplach and kugels are other classics at this time. But why not try banoffee pie, rice pudding? White chocolate and blackberry pie, white chocolate blondies, meringues filled with Greek yogurt and fruit. Creme brulee with a mix of wild berries is always popular. You need to make the base in advance and the crunchy caramelised sugar topping needs to set before serving. And why not meringue roulade or white chocolate roulade filled with cream as it is light and delicious. So I hope you have a tasty dairy and cheesy time. Marvellous sounding stuff, courtesy of Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips there. And don't forget, for any information on the recipes that Denise has mentioned, and for more information, full stop, on her, you can go to her website, which is jewishcookery.com. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Time now for our rabbinic thought for the month. This time it comes from Rabbi Charlie Beginsky, chief executive of Liberal Judaism. Western philosophy has long argued that the ability to use language makes us human. But perhaps as Jews we go one step further and recognise that there is something in the idea that language also makes us Jewish. So much of Judaism is connected to the written and spoken word in a vital and active way. The act of worship, or avodah, combines keva and kavana. This combination of the personal and public aspects of the nature of prayer as communication with God is an indication of the complexity of the importance that language plays in the daily observance of a practising Jew. Keva is a direct link to the past, evoking centuries of tradition through the recitation of the same prayers aloud. Kavanah requires personal engagement with the act of worship. 
It's not enough that Jews believe in God or that we act morally, but there is something deep about expressing this belief with others in a community. This is necessary in order that we are reminded of our obligations both to God and to others. Prayer is a means of keeping us spiritually alert and morally awake, said the Dubna Magid. Language creates, it brings into existence meaning. God created life through language. Jews perpetuate the covenant through language. Language creates. It has created a people and an ever-evolving community. Traditional Jewish law states that a marriage is enacted when words are spoken. The world came into being when God spoke. God said, let there be light, and there was light. It's not just that words have immense power to create and thus to destroy, but they are our connection with the divine. They are what remind us that we are created in the image of the divine, but Selim Elohim. So let's remind ourselves once again that the complexity of existence means that none of us on our own are capable of expressing the full truth and that we are more than capable of opening our hearts and demonstrating humility by listening to others and remembering that disagreements for the sake of heaven sustain. Thank you to Rabbi Charlie Beginsky, Chief Executive of Liberal Judaism, with our rabbinic thought for the month. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. All that's left for me to do is to say thank you to all of our guests, to Rachel Grunwald, Alexander Bermange, Michelle Lee, Beverly Lister, and of course, Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips. And we must also say thank you for listening. Please do remember to subscribe to this show in your podcast application. That's where you'll be informed when any new episodes become available. And of course, you'll be able to hear our entire back catalogue from The Jewish Views. For more information, go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Now, earlier on, we heard Michelle Lee encouraging everyone to go orange or wear orange for Ollie. And of course, that took place on the 1st of May. But here are the Jewish views. Our cover is always orange. And so with that in mind, we'll dedicate this episode of the Jewish views to Ollie Lee. On behalf of the whole team, that is, of course, John Kay, Clive Roslin, Kate Fulton, Tony Honigberg and Viv Krieger. We hope you'll join us next time here on the Jewish views. Goodbye.